Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Ethics for a Changing World. The reality of capitalism is that the vast majority of technological development comes about not from states, but by companies. To embed within those technologies the kinds of ethical principles that we talk about a lot on this show, we have to engage with and properly understand companies, how they operate and what their incentives are. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Dorothea Bauer, who's an ethics consultant in tech and finance, to talk about this. We're going to be talking firstly about AI ethics and why companies engage or don't, um, distinguishing between different types of companies. We're going to be looking at what the role of regulation should be in this space. And finally, we're going to be talking about one specific example, which is Facebook. We're going to be talking about whether the issue with Facebook is a cultural problem at the top, whether there are specific things that we can do to improve the AI ethics at Facebook, or what really is, is going on in terms of Facebook as, as a company and its, its issues with AI ethics. If you enjoyed the show, and I really hope you did, then please be sure to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or give us a like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And be sure to share the episode with friends or anyone who might be interested. Without further ado, on with the show. Hi, Dorothea. Thanks so much for joining us. Could you start just by telling us a little bit about your work? Yes, happy to be here with you. Thanks for inviting me. I was an academic for a long time with a focus on business ethics and corporate social responsibility and sustainability. And that was a few years before the whole topic of AI and ethics really became an issue. But what's interesting now that I have also transitioned into the field of AI ethics as a consultant and lecturer, etc. I see a lot of parallels between the debate on corporate social responsibility or sustainability and AI ethics, both on an academic level and a corporate level or on a practitioner's level. Because in both fields, academic work is, of course, much more abstract, but at the same time also more profound than what you get to read from think tanks and big consulting companies. So when academics do the work that they do in terms of ethics and AI ethics, how closely does that translate into actual AI ethics in the real world in terms of companies? AI ethics in companies operates under the maxim of profit generation. If you work for a profit-oriented company, AI ethics will have to pay off, whereas the research you do on AI ethics in academia is not confined to profit generation. Um, On purpose, not saying profit maximization, because I don't claim that any company wants to maximize profit, but companies do have to generate some kind of uh, of profit to be able to survive. So I think that's like if, if the premise under which you do your research or your work differs so much that, uh, you know, academic research is done out of, you could say, an intrinsic motivation for scientific progress to better understand. And basically, well, it is bound by some, you know, limits in funding and time, et cetera, and it needs to conform to the research standard of journals. But it's totally different uh, 
framework conditions or boundary conditions than when you do it in a company because there's corporate research, there is a goal, it should be you know able to be integrated into products, it should make money or it should avoid damage to your customers, whatever, but it's it's just a different set of premises. Right. So that makes sense. So in in a corporate context, you're not going to challenge the the whole basis of capitalism or the idea of profit maximization or anything like that. The maximum you can expect in terms of critical stances from practitioners' work is that they express the hope or the belief that ethics pays off. So that there will be kind of a win-win situation between ethics and profit, be it AI and ethics or sustainability, uh, sorry, AI ethics and profit or sustainability and profit. So practitioners usually claim they want to sell ethics because they claim that ethics will pay off. And what kind of work do you yourself do on AI ethics? When it comes to AI ethics, I'm mostly involved in lecturing, but I do that not at a graduate level. I mostly lecture in continuing education. So that's like um, people who are already fully embedded in the in, in a work environment and who take some extra courses. And so there I'm teaching AI ethics to people from all kinds of industries and in different, you know, certificate degrees, how you call that, certificate on advanced studies, we call them here. So in disruptive technologies or in fintech or in also digital ethics, like a wider field where I just covered the AI aspect. So lecturing is an important thing. Speaking, of course, general awareness raising. And I'm also actively engaged in this uh, not-for-profit organization called For Humanity, where we develop an independent auditing system for automated uh, decision-making systems. And that's a really important work that picking up speed and we hope to establish something along the lines of the independent third party audits that you have in the financial world or for financial matters. So you, you said you've been working in academia and then in AI ethics for a couple of years. How has the field changed, especially in terms of like the way businesses are using AI ethics in the last couple of years and where do you see it going? Well, I think, as I said, when I was in academia, AI ethics was not much of an issue yet, or it at least was not within my scope of research. So I only know the AI ethics debate uh, since when I have been a consultant. I think AI ethics really benefits from the pioneering work uh, in the field of sustainability because the whole issue of sustainability and social responsibility has raised awareness for non-financial responsibilities of corporations. For a long time, we would have this shareholder value model that was unquestioned. And now for a few years or even decades, the whole stakeholder capitalism model has gained importance. And I think AI ethics is kind of following the path of sustainability, where at first it was seen as an issue of like, well, not really necessary, none of our, our business. And then, you know, companies start to acknowledge it, but still react defensively towards it. And then in the next stage, they might try to establish some compliance with it. 
And eventually, just like sustainability, they will try to embed it into their core strategy. So that's what you can see now in sustainability where companies claim it's in our DNA. Of course, it's not in their DNA, but uh, that they use that term to symbolize that they really care about it and that sustainability is in every embedded in every step they take, et cetera. So I think hopefully AI ethics will follow this path. We're still very early stages, especially in continental Europe from what I observe, but I think that's a direction that's uh, quite possible. It's interesting how sustainability plays into then um, debates about AI ethics. Could you just clarify, you mentioned uh, stakeholder versus shareholder. Uh, capital. Yeah. Could you just explain what that means? Yeah, well, that's uh, kind of one of the fundamental debates that uh, was really important, especially in the 20th century, because after the Cold War ended, it was kind of clear, like Fukuyama said, it's the end of history, free market economy and democracy has won and communism and everything else has lost. And it was unquestioned that free market economy would be oriented towards profit maximization and that the key duty or responsibility of corporations was towards their shareholders because they are the ones who give them money. But already, I mean, during Cold War, already in the 70s also, an alternative view emerged saying that company does not just have shareholders, uh, to which they should pay attention. They also have stakeholders, like everyone who has a stake in the company. And that's all those who can affect or are affected by a company's activities. So usually the classical stakeholders are employees, um, customers, suppliers, but also NGOs, communities, states, all kinds of uh, groups that are involved with the company, including shareholders. Shareholders are just one type of stakeholders. And so when you say shareholder capitalism, you mean that there is that maxim of profit uh, maximization, because the assumption is that your shareholders only, in quotes, or foremost care about profits, whereas stakeholders and employee does not really care whether the company maximizes profits, they want to have a decent job. And uh, an environmental NGO around a factory wants to have a clean environment, etc. So stakeholder capitalism, especially also now in the in the how do you call it, the tens, like the 2010 to 20, uh, stakeholder capitalism has even been picked up by Harvard management scholars like Porter and Kramer. And you know when something has landed in Harvard management school, you know it has become mainstream, and <laughs> it's totally not a niche view anymore it uh, sells quite well. And how seriously do you think, I mean, you're based in Switzerland and you do a lot of work in continental Europe more broadly. How seriously do you think AI ethics is taken in continental Europe? I think it's not yet taken very seriously, especially not on a very narrow uh, level because AI ethics is a highly also technical matter and it first of all it presumes that there are companies that really use ai as machine learning you know and in advanced stages so there's always this joke how company sell something as ai that's in fact an excel sheet so how many true ai companies do we even have how many of them understand ai that they are using and how many of them 
care about the ethical aspects of the AI that they're using. So I think it's really still early stages. There is more of an awareness for something called corporate digital responsibility or digital ethics, which refers to the overarching questions of how a company can design and deploy digital technology responsibly. For example, you know, can you, is it okay to monitor your employees' productivity in the home office with AI? Or, um, you know, how do you do the default privacy settings for the visitors of your website, et cetera? So that's concerning all the questions surrounding digital technology. But narrowly focusing on AI ethics with the really, really, you know, technical questions of how to secure explainability of machine learning algorithms and how to identify bias in a data set, et cetera. In those regards, companies are not that advanced yet, I would say. And what do you think gets companies to engage in AI ethics in the first place? You said there's not that much engagement in Europe at the moment. Well, yeah, but I think if there will be engagement, it will be triggered by stakeholders. Again, I can use this term. So it will be by stakeholder pressure, either legal, financial, or reputational pressure. For example, when you look at Silicon Valley and big tech companies, you can see that their most critical force are their own employees. You could see that when Google wanted to engage with the Pentagon on an AI project that was uh, where AI was used to help drones identify and track objects, uh, the employees protested and 3,000 of them signed a letter of protest and some of them even quit their job. So uh, Google couldn't implement that project against the will of their employees. So the employees were the driving force for AI ethics there. And so employees are one important source because they're mo the, the most precious resource, if you want to say so. I hate the term resource for humans, but in that case, maybe it's true. So employees are the most uh, precious resource for a company. And if they have high ethical standards, you cannot override them because you will lose them, especially in a field where they have a lot of alternative employment options. And uh, next to employees, pressure can also come from shareholders, of course. Um, that's starting. That's, again, linked to sustainability because the whole sustainability debate which is summarized under the acronym ESG, like environmental, social, and governance uh, when it comes to investors' perspective. So the whole ESG movement among investors means that investors are not one-dimensionally focusing on profit anymore. Again, they are taking a wider view. And within that wider view, they also care about things like privacy or you know ethics of technology. For example, Amazon has come under attack by their shareholders uh, for their use of their facial recognition software. And I think in the future, we will see more of that. That when shareholders say we are responsible shareholders, we do responsible investing, they don't just um, narrow that focus to the question whether they should invest into a arms manufacturer or into a nuclear power station, they will also, you know, apply that uh, perspective of responsibility to issues like uh, the technology or digital technology that their investees are using. So shareholders are another source of pressure, 
which I, even though I've never been really fond of shareholder value, et cetera, but I, I put a lot of hope in them actually. And then of course, also academia has an impact because uh, in academia, people face a dilemma. Good researchers are often lured away from academia because funding is very scarce and it's much easier to make a living in a big tech company or in the tech industry. So uh, some of them join and they move from academia into the industry uh, where they get good salaries and a stable employment. But however, maybe these academics, ideally they bring some of their critical mindset into the companies and then they might become internal critics like those who protested uh, against Google's engagement with the Pentagon. So as I said, it's reputational if you are, especially in a B2C business, that is if you have a product that is sold like a brand and you don't want to be boycotted. So it's a reputational question in that uh, case or legal because we are also having the EU AI Act that's coming up or also financial considerations, that, because in the end it negatively impacts your bottom line that get companies to engage in AI ethics. And I wanna say, I don't wanna come across as the hardcore capitalist here, but I say that because of course I would hope that companies are intrinsically motivated about ethics and you know that there is a CEO with very high values. And you have some such brands, for example, in sustainability like Patagonia, where you can really say they probably really care about ethics and it's not about profit maximization or just profit generation but that's still an exception i would say and i i don't know that many examples in the tech industry when it comes to ai ethics that have ethics in their really in their dna and that they that deserve to call themselves intrinsically motivated about ethics and just leading on from that then what happens with most sorts of companies which don't have this in their DNA, when AI ethics collides with their fundamental aim, which is profitability? Of course, such companies that don't have ethics in their real DNA, but that use more of a, like a CRISPR gene manipulation <laughs> mechanism to, to, to integrate ethics in hindsight, they will make sure that they only do ethics as long as it pays off. So if ethics collides with profits, they will try to do whatever they can to turn it into a win-win situation to see how, how they can still make money of it. But the problem is if your case for ethics is dependent on the fact that it helps you generate profits and because you believe it's a strategic advantage, you will let go of it as soon as you lose that advantage. And that's really a very volatile approach to ethics because ethics will be the first thing to be dropped as soon as it doesn't pay off anymore however and that's where the cultural you know dimension comes into play if ethics is really in your dna really in your dna not like manipulated and if it is embedded in processes and products and you have people who are in charge of ethics and everyone knows their responsibilities then it will be much more difficult to just drop ethics once it does not pay off anymore because it's a standard operating procedure. And in that case, this entangling ethics from your business and your entire corporate culture will become costly in itself. 
That's a really interesting point. And just more broadly then, what aspects of AI ethics do companies most struggle with, do you think? AI is such a, well, not really new field, but on such a large scale and the whole hype around AI is rather young. And how many companies really understand where they use AI, what kind of AI they use, etc. So it's a long way to get from that point. Once you've reached that point, you still need to make a step towards uh, thinking about the ethical aspects, as I, as I said. So I think at the moment, there's just a, a huge lack of understanding in general. There is a lack of awareness of uh, you know what AI means, how it works, where you use it, where you should use it, where you should not use it. And there's also often a lack of understanding between technical people in companies, like engineers and non-technical people. There is no real interdisciplinarity. And, you know, HR might care about, you know, employee surveillance and technical people might see it as a, as a good technical solution. And I'm, I don't want to imply that engineers don't have any you know, moral attitude or anything that's a bit cliched. But oftentimes these different departments, they speak really different languages. And that makes it really hard to integrate ethics into your AI systems, really on, on a product level. And where do you find those people that at the same time have technical expertise and ethical understanding or how do you make people who have one of those skills talk to those with the other skills? So I think that's a huge cultural challenge for companies, aside from all the preceding challenges of figuring out what AI means, where you use it, why it is a problem, etc. And also, I guess one other problem that they have is that the whole regu regulatory standards on this are still very new and I mean, you mentioned the EU AI Act, which comes into yeah. force this year. This is a, a very rapidly changing field. Um, and it's not really clear what the standards actually are in terms of details at the moment, is it? Yeah, I think this will be a driving force. or so regulation will be a driving force uh, for companies to think more uh, deeply about or more in a more differentiated way about what technology they use and you know whether just like they had to do with the gdpr which forced them to look into their privacy uh policies etc they will have to work on their ai policies and they will have to check whether the fields of application because that's the ai act is mostly centered around fields of application like uh not about the technology that you're using but more about where you use it so they need to check companies need to check whether the fields of application are uh, require conformity assessment as the eu says whether they're classified high risk or low risk etc so this will be i think very fruitful for increasing understanding in companies it will force them to develop a deeper understanding but of course uh, there is a lot of uncertainty so we're going to talk now about a specific example, which most people will probably at least be familiar with, which is Facebook and the recent case of Frances Haugen, I think is how you say her name. And she came to the US government with, 
a huge amount of evidence about damaging business practices at Facebook and Instagram, which Facebook owns, or Meta, if we call it that name, especially in the fact that Instagram is damaging for children and that Facebook is well aware of that. And she claims specifically that there's no will at the top of the organization to make sure that these systems are run in an adequately safe way. Do you think the problem when we when it comes to Facebook is is a cultural one? And do you think there's anything we can do about that? I think it is also a cultural problem, but it is also a problem of the very product that they sell and of the business model that they follow. It's not just bad business culture, but maybe. So let me start with the product. So Facebook makes money by people spending time on their platforms. And in order to, how do you say, keep the attention of users, you need to present them with content that kind of interests them. And what interests humans, unfortunately, is not nice flowers and, you know, birds chirping, but human psychology works in a well, in, in a way that means that we stay there when something, you know, catches our attention because it's outrageous or it's kind of emotionally stimulating also in a negative way, positive or negative way, etc. So the combination of the way Facebook makes money, that is by keeping users engaged and the way humans uh, or what kind of content humans need in order to stay engaged is a toxic combination. And so when you decide you want to make money by capturing people's attention, you also accept that this means that you take advantage of the weak sides of human psychology. <laughs> Because there is no other way. I mean, if if you you cannot capture people's attention with uh, you know very factual or like harmonious, lovely content alone, that's not how it works. So then this means if you decide to go into this business and to take advantage of the fact that people stay longer when you present them with how you say divisive content etc for example that means that you might as a result also or as a result or in parallel also have a corporate culture that's not very ethical to put it simple so uh, it's it's not really surprising that the corporate culture matches the product it's like would you expect uh, an arms dealer to have like a super duper diversity, equity, inclusion committee and a flat hierarchy, etc. There are certain products and there are certain cultures that match and other products and cultures don't match, I would say. So it's not surprising that there is not a lot of willingness at the top of Meta to change something about these issues because that's how they earn their money. And if they admitted that these findings that Francis Haugen showed were relevant, they would discredit their own way of making money. Wow, that's a really powerful point um, that you've made there. And just leading on from that then, what do you think we should do more generally about Facebook? We being society as a whole, or that could be regulators, what, what should we do about them? 
Well, that's really a difficult question also because I'm not a lawyer. I know there are these uh, huge debates about the responsibility of platforms, but from the little I know, and it's really, it's not my field of expertise, but I think if you are a platform and you allow people to publish on your platform, you are responsible for the content of what they publish. That's, you know, the whole discussion about Twitter and Trump, etc. It's like if I had a newspaper on print and I'd invite you as a guest author and you write whatever hateful propaganda, I'd be responsible for printing that. But it's a very simplified notion. I know it's much more complicated when it comes to big tech platforms. But I think it's, uh, I would hope that regulators become active because we as users, what can we do? We can boycott it, but we know that we are also entangled and especially when corporations are as big as Meta and they own several of these, you know, messenger services and Instagram and um, Facebook, et cetera. It's really hard to stay away. So I think the main duty would lie, of course, with the corporations and their shareholders. But then again, if you buy shares from Facebook, you buy shares for a business model that makes money with what I described before. You buy shares of someone who makes money by keeping people engaged. And how do they keep them engaged? By presenting them with whatever kind of content it is, but not the best type of content. So you can't expect meta shareholders to be really highly intrinsically motivated and responsible so shareholders don't count so it would be yeah maybe also the management of facebook or meta can't be really trusted uh, so i think it's really a case for the regulator yeah and we're at the point now with facebook where it's so embedded into people's lives people run their businesses on facebook people i mean it's, it's very difficult for example to get involved in lots of things at university without being on Facebook because lots of things are organized on there. It's just become very difficult for individuals to boycott and therefore that places the onus on the regulator. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, there's also this idea that you could uh, treat them as a utility provider. I think you have thought about that previously. And I think it, it might have to be looked at as something like a utility uh, provider because it's not just a uh, know a matter of like like a brand of clothes you buy this type of clothing or that type where you really have some choice it's really something that's making you a member of a community or if not you're being you know excluded and uh, carry high costs of being excluded fantastic thanks so much for speaking to us today uh, dorothea thanks again for having me
Thanks for listening to another episode of Ethics for a Changing World. And remember to like and leave a review and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast and share it with anyone who might be interested. We have lots of other episodes available that you can listen to on different topics. Um, this week, in this episode, we specifically mentioned the EU AI Act, which we have an episode all about in the context of algorithmic management, um, which I think you'd really enjoy. I'll see you next time.